We are really grateful, Lord, that this is a Bible study and not a Koran study. And we don't say that flippantly. We're, we're just grateful that you have worked in our lives and you have opened our blinded eyes and you've shown us the truth uh, about Jesus and the truth about ourselves and the fact that apart from him we can do nothing. And we're thankful that you have given us your, your word that is inspired, uh, it is authoritative, it can be trusted, it is, a, uh, it is a living book, it is the book of books. Every other book is beneath this book because this is, this is your word to us, it is God-breathed. Uh, you tell us why we are here. You tell us why we exist. You tell us where we are going. You, you tell us the truth about life. And in a world of um, 24-7 lying and deceit and misinformation and spin, it is so refreshing to open the pages of your book and to get the unvarnished truth. How grateful we are. How thankful we are that, uh, that you have opened our eyes and that you'll give us insight into what is, uh, into what is real. Uh, we, we used to walk one way, but because of your goodness and kindness to us, uh, even when we were dead, you made us alive. And you enabled us to see the truth of the gospel. Uh, and you, you, you even gave us the faith so that we could receive the gospel. And not only that, but once you have caused us to be born again, you have good works that you have planned before, for, from before the foundations of the world that we might walk in them. You have a purpose for every guy in this room. We're, uh, we're alive by your will. And we, uh, and we live and move and have our being uh, within you and within your will. And that's just not God talk, and it's just not theological talk. It's just the way things are. Um, there's an old hymn that says, I need thee every hour. And that's accurate. But it would be more accurate to say that I need you every second. Without you, we don't exist. Without you, we don't continue to exist. This Christian life is not an easy life. It's a hard life. Um, you told us in the world we'd have tribulation. You said through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So sometimes we, uh, we get worn out, and sometimes we get beat up, and sometimes we get roughed up, and that's where some of us are right now. We're just weary. We're just bone-tired weary. And we need encouragement. So I would ask, Lord, that you would give us your kindness tonight and encouragement to sustain us and to, and to give us, Lord, to give us what we need, not what we want, but what we need. We need a timely word. Some of us need a timely mercy. Some of us, Lord, need your wisdom to make a mid-course correction. Some of us, Lord, if the truth were, were to be known, we're a little bit fearful right now because we're not sure what's next. And we've never been in this spot before, and there's some anxiety, and it's thrown us a little bit. So we, so we ask for clear direction from you. 
at, at, at your time, not, not in our time, at your time. You're the potter, we're the clay. May we never forget that. Sometimes we get it turned around. You are the owner. You are the master. We are the servants. We are here not to do our will, but to do yours. We move ahead in confidence tonight, opening your scriptures, believing that your spirit will, um, will teach every guy. If we didn't believe that, we wouldn't even be here tonight. So in complete and total dependence upon you, we open your word and we would say, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from thy law. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is your first time here with us tonight. We are in the middle of a uh, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling "Snapshots of Stupid." Just kind of a warm, ingratiating title, don't you think? Just want to make everyone feel good. Uh, you say, "What's that about?" Well, when you look in the scriptures, um, just like at home, you can pull out the photo album, and every once in a while we do that, don't we? Uh, at our house, Mary's got it organized, and she's spent time doing that, and we can pull them down, and they're in sequence. Now, some are still in a box because we're always adding to them. But it's kind of fun, and it always happens around the holidays. You'll pull down one of those photo albums, and, and you, you open up, and there are the snapshots. And boy, the memories come flooding back, don't they? The kids and, you know, oh, we remember we took that vacation, and we did this and that. They're snapshots. Well, if we look back over our lives, we, have all, we, we all have a photo album that we could call Snapshots of Stupid, because we, we have all uh, fallen short, we have all made mistakes, we have, uh, we have all regretted things that we have done. If we could go back and delete, we'd delete. If we could go back and erase, we'd erase. Every guy in this room. If we could go back and expunge, we'd do it. Um, Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward. We have mentioned in this study that there are two kinds of stupid. There's permanent stupid and there's teachable stupid. Um, we don't want to be permanent stupid. We want to be teachable stupid. We're going we're to fall short. We're going to screw up. We're going to make mistakes. But the whole point of that is to learn and not just grow old, but to learn and grow up and to mature. We're, we're looking at different men in the scriptures who have erred in one of two ways. We have sort of a foundational verse for this series. And the verse is 1 Timothy 4.16, where Paul says to young Timothy, uh, it's, it's very brief, it's very short, but it's, it's pregnant with meaning. He says, as he is coaching young Timothy, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 16, he says, pay close attention to your life and pay close attention to your doctrine. Some translations would say, uh, watch closely. Watch yourself closely. Um, and watch your teaching. So there are two things we've got to watch. We've got to watch ourselves. We've got to watch our lives. We've got to watch which we, what we think. We've got to watch who we hang out with. We, we've got to watch who we allow to influence us. We've got to watch ourselves. Because quite frankly, we uh, are our biggest enemies. 
My biggest problem is not this guy or this guy or this or this. My biggest problem is me. So I've got to watch how I live my life. Every action has a reaction. Every choice has a consequence. Every cause has an effect. When we're young, we tend not to figure that out. Hopefully, as we're getting older, we're thinking through our choices. Because every choice is going to bring a consequence. Most of us have had to learn the hard way. I don't know anybody who's learned the easy way. I just don't know of anybody who's in that camp. Paul's trying to coach this young pastor. Watch your life closely. Watch your doctrine closely. Last week, we looked at a guy who's obscure named Hymenaeus. He did not watch his doctrine closely. He did not watch what he taught closely. He played loose with the scriptures. Tonight, we're going to shift gears. Tonight, we're going to look at a guy whose doctrine, as far as we know, was absolutely on target. He, he is not uh, rebuked for saying the resurrection has already occurred. He's not rebuked for taking the, the scriptures um, and, and twisting them. Uh, nothing is said about that. So, so the clear implication is that when it came to doctrine, he watched his doctrine very closely. But this guy didn't watch his life. Now, I'm going to rant and rave for a few minutes tonight. I try not to do this. I, I really do. You, you think I'm kidding. If, if you knew how much I held back, a lady criticized Charles Spurgeon for using too much humor in the pulpit. And, and he smiled and, and nodded and listened to her, and he said, My dear lady, if you knew how much I held back, you would commend me. <laughs> Some of you guys think I rant and rave all the time. But if you knew how much I held back. Now, this, you, you may wonder, as I begin this tonight, where the heck is he going? But stay with me. I got the GPS on here. We're, we're going to talk about snapshots of stupid. And we're going to talk about the importance of watching how we as men, as Christian men, live our lives. Because how we live as Christian men, I think, is more critical than most of us realize. Our culture is becoming absolutely insane. Insane. Uh, I always enjoy reading Albert Muller's uh, blog. He's president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. Great theologian, great guy. Let me give you a couple shots off, uh, off his web. Uh, blog from a couple days ago. He said, some cultural developments represent massive shifts in consciousness and worldview. These developments can only be explained by a dramatic reshaping, catch this, of our moral sense and understanding of basic reality. That's pretty significant what he's saying. Such is the case with news coming forth from both coasts indicating 
that transgendered children are now enrolled in kindergarten programs. From the Miami Herald. One little girl entering Broward County kindergarten this fall is actually a boy. Few will know this genetic truth because the five-year-old's parents and school administrators have agreed that it's in his best interest to blend in as a female, as a five-year-old kid. Mental health professionals, and you really got to wonder about that one right there. Mental health morons, uh, you would be tempted to say, but I'll just quote it. Mental health professionals... And, and, you know, if this wasn't so serious, it'd be laughable. Professing to be wise, they became as fools, Romans says, because they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. Basically for idols. Let me read it. Mental health professionals have diagnosed Pat, not his real name, with gender dysphoria, a condition in which a person believes that he or she is the opposite gender. After two years of examination, so this has been going on since he's three, they have determined that he is not simply effeminate or going through a phase. The soon-to-be kindergartner looks quite feminine, cartwheeling around the house and playing with dolls. Pat says he hates his penis. Now, 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 this is tragic, that, that a child would be in a position to even say such a thing. Something's going on in this family. He hates his penis, and he refuses to wear boys' clothing. He and his three older siblings, two girls and a boy, live in middle-class Broward County neighborhood with their father, an attorney, and their mother, who has a master's degree in counseling. Pat's parents had never heard of gender dysphoria until they took their child for treatment. He was insisting that he was a girl and often tried to hide his penis between his legs. Okay, they've come up with this, and this is called gender dysphoria. Now, I'm going to tell you what this is. This is a little boy who desperately needs to be emotionally connected to a masculine father who loves him and disciplines him and spends time with him, and plays with him, and reads books to him, and pours his life into that little boy's heart. We're not done yet. I know you guys love the San Francisco Chronicle. So now I'm going to quote from them. Some of you were happy when you walked in here. I'm going to do everything I can do to, to bring that to a conclusion here real quick. This is from the San Francisco Chronicle. The other one was from the Miami Herald. Park Day School is throwing out gender boundaries. Teachers at the private Oakland Elementary School have stopped asking the children to line up according to sex when walking to and from class. They now let, they now let boys play girls and girls play boys in skits. Now I want to ask you something. When you were a young boy in kindergarten or first grade, how many of you ever wanted to play a girl? See, there's something going on here that's not being told. Oh, by the way, and there's a unisex bathroom. Admissions director Flo Hodis is even a little apologetic that she still balances classes by gender. Um, 
Park Day's gender-neutral metamorphosis happened over the past few years as applications trickled in for kindergartners, kindergartners who didn't fit on either side of the gender line. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Do kindergartners fill out applications? No. Their parents do. One girl enrolled as a boy, and there were other children who didn't dress or act in gender-typical ways. Last year, the school hired a consultant to, have to, to help the staff accommodate these new students. The consultant is a graduate of a local evangelical Bible college. I just made that up. <laughs> we had to ask ourselves, what is gender for young children? Let me read that again. We had, these people are serious. We had to ask ourselves, what is gender for young children? Well, most people who aren't idiots know what gender is. I told you I was going to rant and rave. But there, there's a point, guys. There's just a point where this is ludicrous. And you know what? These are little children's lives. This isn't, I mean, we're playing social experiment here. These are little kids. And we're missing with their minds. Uh, I, I can't even read the next um, paragraph. Uh, Al Mohler says, let's be honest here. These stories represent a breathtaking shift in the way human beings view sexuality, sex, and gender. The urgent question is this. What worldview makes such a proposal possible? And the proposal that he is alluding to is what I skipped in the previous paragraph, that so much of the public focus in these progressive schools is now, as they deal with gender dysphoria, their solution is what they call a gender-fluid environment. So he asked the question, what worldview makes such a proposal plausible? The assumption that a gender is a fluid category is rooted in the belief that gender is a socially constructed reality, not necessarily related to biology and anatomy, a central tenet of postmodern theory. Okay. So, you know, we throw terms around all the time. Postmodern. Basically, postmodernism. And you've got, you got Christian guys. You've got some pastors who say that they hold to Christian beliefs, who pride themselves on being postmodern. And there's a whole movement called the Emerging Church Movement. And, and, some of those guys are more off the deep end than others. But you've got to understand something about postmodernism. Postmodernism, basically, the concept of postmodernism is there is no absolute truth. Well, once you take that position that there is no absolute truth, you, you've just cut the legs out from under you. Because then anything, anything goes. So you see, ideas have consequences, don't they? Um, now I want to go back to something. You, see, you guys still with me? Okay. The assumption that gender is a fluid category is rooted in the belief that gender is a socially constructed reality, not necessarily related to biology and anatomy. Well, you see, gender is related to biology and anatomy. Male and female, he created them. 
Genesis 1.27. But if you don't believe there's such a thing as absolute truth. See, here's what happens. When you say there is no God, and you say there is no absolute truth, and you say that anything is okay as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, and when, and when, and when you say all the nonsense that we've been hearing for 40 years, there are implications and there are consequences. Uh, we, we are absolutely going insane because truth is put in a box, truth is ignored, truth is mocked, truth is denied, and we're raising families in this culture. I've noticed, I used to live in California. I, 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 it, it, it would seem to me that trends would start oftentimes in California, and then move across the country. But now with the proliferation of the Internet and television and MTV and all that stuff, it's happening really fast. Uh, this stuff is absolutely unthinkable. But it's where we are today. I, I don't, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I've quit reading newspapers. I just can't take it anymore. I, I just I can't take it. I read a newspaper about once a month. And then I say to myself, I can't do this for at least another month. <laughs> and I used to read two to three newspapers a day. I don't, I don't read them anymore. There's too much foolishness. There's too much nonsense. There's too much stupidity. Um, I would, I, although I did catch something on the news the other night. They were talking about the Senate race in Virginia and uh, George Allen, and he made a racial comment, and, you know, and that, that was his mistake. But then it said his opponent, and I don't remember the guy's name, he also made a mistake because he publicly said that, uh, uh, let's see, what did he say? He said that uh, uh, women soldiers should not lead men in combat. But he quickly apologized. And I'm thinking, that's absolutely insane. What did he say? He said, women, soldiers, should not lead men into combat. Let me tell you something. Women shouldn't be in combat. They shouldn't even be out there. But we keep losing our mind. And, and this guy apologized. He, why did he apologize? Well, you know, it's like what happened to me a while back last year when I was speaking at a Christian firefighters conference. At great time, great group of guys, and they were there with their wives. And as I'm talking to these guys, I was just talking about what's happening in our culture and how we're changing and how we're losing our minds. And I said, even you guys, you're firefighters. And, and, and you know what? Be because, because of where we are in this culture, a lot of you guys... You, you find yourself in very, very difficult situations where your life's on the line. Because what we've done, we've lowered the standards. Because somebody said women ought to be firefighters. But the problem is women can't pass the physical test because women were not made by God to be strong enough to pass the physical test. You can be the same height and the same weight as a woman, but men have 40% more muscle mass. Why? Because male and female, he created them. And he, and he has different roles for us to play. But of course, we've thrown all that out. So, we got to have women in the fire department. We just have to. And so as a result, but they can't pass the test. Oh, well, then that's easy. What do we do? We lower the standards. 
I said, that's nonsense. So, I mean, and you know you could lose your life. You see? I, I, I've made this statement before. If I was a cop, let me tell you something. If I'm a cop, I don't want some Barbie doll sitting next to me in, 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 the, in the cruise car. You know what I mean? I don't want some homecoming queen. I don't want some chick with, a, with, with her little ponytail swinging back and forth and her little badge and her little gun. I mean, I wouldn't, would you? Because those guys are playing hardball out there. I want a partner who's about 6'6", about 260. He's got about 3% body fat, and he can't read. <laughs> That's what I want. And he walks, when he walks, his knuckles are on the ground. <laughs> now, you know what? 40 years ago, that's just the way life was. It was just how it was. But not anymore. Why? Because we've lost all sense of balance and truth. I'm gonna, uh, this guy, Harvey Mansfield, has written a book called Manliness. And what's interesting is he's a professor at, uh, uh, he's a professor at Harvard. Now, first of all, there aren't a lot of men at Harvard. <laughs> but secondly, he's a professor, and there's a, at least what I've read, there's some common sense here. Catch this. Today, the very word manliness seems quaint and obsolete. We are in the process of making the English language gender neutral. And manliness, the quality of one gender, or rather of one sex, seems to describe the essence of the enemy we are attacking, the evil that we are eradicating. Recently, I had a call from the alumni magazine at the university where I work asking me to comment on a former professor of mine who was now being honored. Responding too quickly, I said, what impressed all of us about him was his manliness. There was silence at the other end of the line. And, and finally, the female voice said, could you think of another word? We now avoid using man to refer to both sexes. If you ever hear me say humankind, shoot me. Would you do that? Would you do me a favor? We now avoid using man to refer to both sexes, as in the glowing phrase, rights of man, to which America was once dedicated. All the man words have been brought to account and corrected. Mankind has become humankind, man of the year, person of the year, and so on. But even when man means only male, manly still seems pretentious in our new society and threatening to it as well. A manly man is making a point of the bad attitude he ought to be playing down. He just said it right there. See, manliness is a bad thing, our culture says. And when you buy into that, you get five-year-olds that are dealing with this kind of nonsense. So, gentlemen, when all else fails, read the directions. Male and female, he created them. Uh, God created this. He made men to be men. He made women to be women. God likes men to be masculine. He likes women to be feminine. I'll tell you what else. God's called men to lead the family, and God's called men to lead the church. That's the way it works. If you read the Bible uh, and you don't mess around with the text, God wants men to be leaders of their home. 
Now, you can go to some big-time churches, and they'll tell you that male headship is the result of sin and satanic influence, and that's almost a direct quote from a professor at Wheaton College. And because I'm in such a nice mood tonight, I'm not going to quote him by name. But give me 10 minutes and I might. Um, you say, what does this have to do with our study tonight, Steve? Um, well, it has a lot to do with our study because what's happening, guys, is that God has designed us as men. How many of you guys, how many of you guys are married? Let me see your hands. Okay. All right. The rest of you guys, you need to get married. I'm kind of horsing around. Let me say something to you young single guys, okay? Some of you guys, I want to talk to you guys. Let me tell you something. God's called you to be a man, and he's called you to eat responsibility for breakfast. And, it, and, and, and your whole existence is based on taking initiative and taking responsibility and taking pressure upon you. That's what God wants for you. That's what you've been made for. He wants you to commit that's what he wants you to do. He doesn't want you to sleep around. He doesn't want you to see how many orgasms you can have with as many different women as possible. As Tony Evans says, any dog can do that. Now, for some, it's God's plan that they be single. For most of you who are single, you'll be married one day. The time to prepare for being a husband is before you ever get married. So how do I prepare? You follow Christ with your whole heart. You hang out with other men who are godly men and love Christ. You are brutally honest in your personal life. And you're not living a double life. You're going to follow Christ with your whole heart. And you're going to stumble and fall like we all do. But you're not screwing around. And you're embracing responsibility. And, uh, and you're not afraid to commit. Now, some of you have grown up in homes where there's divorce. And I've noticed a lot of young guys, if, if divorce hits your family, a lot, a lot of guys are afraid of getting married. Don't, don't let that scare you. You are not doomed to repeat the mistakes of your parents. And it might not have been both parents who wanted the divorce. It might have just been one. And if it was your father, it's particularly tough on you since you're a male. But you don't have to repeat his mistakes. In fact, you have the opportunity because of the greatness of Christ to put a new link in your family chain, and it desperately needs a new link. But, but you've got to get serious. You're not a 12-year-old adolescent. At some point, you find you look for a godly woman and as you're looking for a godly woman, you be a godly young man. And when you find her, and you get to know her, and you talk to her, don't, don't touch her. Talk to her. Find out what's in her heart. Find out if you're compatible intellectually and emotionally and volitionally. And, and, and find out if you can make decisions together. And find, just, you got you to talk. You got to find out what makes her tick. And, and, and if it seems that everything's running on all the cylinders, then you know what you do? You commit and you get married. And you don't sign a prenuptial before you get married. You don't do that stuff. Because it's for better or worse, and it'll get worse, by the way. <laughs> and it's for richer or poorer, and it's in sickness and in health, and you're going to have some of all that stuff. But till death do you part. That's what you do. 
And you may not make a lot of money and start a software company and leave your kids billions. You'll just screw them up if you do that. But you leave them that, and you've left them something. Some of you have a divorce in your background. Well, you make sure that's in your background, and you get married. That's it. There's no more divorce. In your, that's it, as far as you're concerned. You can't make somebody else do it right, but you do what's right. I just thought we'd go light tonight, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but let me tell you something. We're in a crisis. We're in an absolute crisis. I don't think we have any clue. Did I already ask how many of you guys were married? Yes, I did. All right. How many of you guys are, uh, how many of you guys are fathers? Let me see your hands. Okay, now you're really playing a big-time role. How many of you guys are grandfathers? It's great you can get your arms up. That's wonderful. Those rotator cuffs, man. That's really outstanding. Can I tell you something, guys? God has designed us as men to be the moral compass of the family. Not your wife. Do you realize that parenting books, Christian parenting books, up until about the 1860s were always written to fathers? And after the Civil War, it switched and, be, and, and the focus began to be on the women. Women, this idea began to develop that women are the moral focus of the family. Uh-uh. Men are called to be the moral focus of the family. Not that wives don't have a tremendous influence, but I'm going to tell you something. I like what Dobson says. Who's the tribal chief in your family? It better be you. See, we're doing this social experiment, playing with this stuff. And you know what? It's not working real well. So when all else fails, what do you do? You read the directions. The scriptures have some very interesting things to say about family and about marriage. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. Boy. Now let me tell you something. If you're a godly man, you don't walk around saying to your wife, you need to submit to me. If you're a wuss and you're an insecure man, you say that. Well, you just need to submit to me. Why don't you shut up and why don't you submit to Christ? If you were submitted to Christ, you wouldn't need to tell her. Are you guys following me here? I've had, well, you know, my wife, she's not submissive. Well, let's talk about you for a minute. Because, see, submission is just not a women's issue. Submission is a Christian issue. It, Jesus is our Lord. He's our master. Do you submit to Christ? Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. You see? So it starts with us. We've got to watch our lives. We've got to pay close attention to our lives. And I'm going to tell you something. Let me tell you something. We've got all this nonsense filtering in around us, coming in 24 hours a day. It's coming in through uh, TV. It's coming in through books. It's coming in through wuss churches that don't teach the Word of God. You know what I'm talking about? And a lot of them are big, but they're wusses. And they don't have guts to stand on the Word of God. And they want everybody to feel good. And they want everybody to come back. And uh, so they just don't have the guts to come out and follow the scriptures. Okay? So if you walk into some big time church and there's a woman up there preaching, 
you better walk out if you take the word of God seriously. Well, you know, I, I think that's, you know, that's probably cultural. It's not cultural. You got 2,000 years of church history that it says it's not cultural. It's hip and it's modern, and it's the church being influenced by the world. I've enjoyed teaching this study the last five years, and uh, I just wanted to say, God bless you guys as I leave, and I'm going to put on my In-N-Out Burger hat, and I'll have fond memory. I'd like you all to sign my yearbook before I leave tonight. That'd mean a lot to me. It just kind of gets sickening, guys, because you see, God has told us how we are to live. Uh, as men, we play an incredibly strategic role. You know how I got in men's ministry? Uh, it started, I never had any intents or designs to do it all the time. It's just what God did. But when I was a young rookie pastor, it didn't take me too long. It took me about six months of having people come in with counseling issues. You know what I began to realize? About 90% of the counseling that I did as a young pastor, when you reduce that issue down to its lowest common denominator, you know what the issue was? The man was not being the man. I was 27 years old, and that was real clear to me. So I began to think, so you know what? If I focused on equipping the men, I'd have the wives and the kids. Pretty simple, isn't it? Now, I want to show you a guy who looked like a real good Christian leader, but he wasn't. He watched his doctrine. If, if, if he lived in Frisco, he'd probably be at this Bible study. He probably wouldn't have been on the retreat last weekend. Uh, he'd probably listen to Chuck on Insight for Living as he's driving around town. See, his doctrine, he had the doctrine. He had it down. What he didn't have down was his life. Turn with me to 3 John. You know, we've got a bunch of letters in the New Testament. We call them epistles. Now, 3 John is one of those little suckers in the back, just before you get to Revelation. In fact, it's so small, it, it, you know, it's kind of like a postcard, is really what it is, because it's only 15 verses. Um, and the reason this is so critical, and, and I have to be honest with you guys, I, I kind of struggled about teaching from this guy's life tonight, because I thought that I had just done this here. But I went back over everything I've done over the last several years, and I can't find it ever talked about it. Maybe it was in the first couple of weeks we started this Bible study. But most of you guys weren't here. And most of you guys that were here don't even remember. So I'm just going to do it again. This guy is one of these obscure guys in Scripture. His name is Diotrephes. I'll tell you how I got onto this guy. When, when I was a freshman in seminary, we had, to do a, uh, we had to do a homiletics. It's where they teach you how to construct a message. We, we had to do a sermon on an obscure figure in Scripture that we knew nothing about. So I started flipping through the New Testament, and I came to 3 John, and I found this guy. I'd never heard of him. His name is Diotrephes. And these are the only two times he's the only two verses where he's mentioned in the whole Scripture. Uh, John is writing to the church, the Apostle John. Um, you get down to verse 9, and we'll just jump into it. And it says this. Uh, John says, I wrote something to the church. And by the way, you know, back then... The church was gathered. When a letter would come in from one of the apostles, it was a big deal. So they'd read it publicly. So they're all excited. All right, everybody calm down. We're going to read this thing. So, you know, it starts off, the elder to the beloved Gaius, 
whom I love in truth. Gaius is one of the leaders. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. You know, I have no greater joy than this. Verse 4, to hear my children walking in the truth. You're acting faithfully. Verse 5, you know, um, um, you know, we sent out brethren in verse 5. They went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. We've sent out others to tell the truth. Verse 9, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does. Now, by the way, Diotrephes is sitting right over here. I mean, he's just rolling along listening to the letter. And all of a sudden, his name comes up. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. This guy was a, was a Bible-believing, doctrinally pure jerk, is what he was. He looked really good. His doctrine was on target. He had all his T's crossed and his I's dotted. He had the right translation. Uh, never, never any indictment here of saying the resurrection has already occurred. Now, the, guy, the guy on doctrine, he was right down the line. Absolutely right down the line. But you see, his life is so screwed up that John has to publicly call him out and say what he's going to do as an apostle when he shows up. This guy, this guy, along with Gaius, was a leader in the church. But this is a man who was a leader who really wasn't a leader. He paid close attention to what he believed, but he didn't pay close attention to his life. And therefore, when you don't pay close attention to your life, you cannot have the influence as a man on your family or on your church or on your workplace or on your community as you should have because you're not paying a close attention to how you live. You're not paying close attention to your, uh, to your attitudes. And, and we all, guys, we all have blind spots. We all have these huge blind spots that we can't see. Uh, isn't it Psalm 19? David says, you know, for, uh, forgive me for presumptuous sins, for hidden sins. There are areas in our lives we just simply cannot see. But you need someone to help you see them if your life is going to count and if you're going to have influence. I, I, I'm aware of a man, and before I knew the man, I knew some of his children who were my approximate age. And he is um, a Christian teacher and has had some influence and has done some publishing. Uh, but in interacting with a couple of his children who were my peers, it was interesting because I would talk to people who had heard him and sat under his ministry and just had the greatest admiration for him and thought so highly of him. And he would meet with them one-on-one and spend time with them and was so patient and caring and just pouring his life into them. But when I would talk to these two children of his, I'd get a completely different response. Completely different. 
because he was one way in public and he was another way at home. Uh, one of them completely abandoned Christianity. Completely and totally. I mean, and, and, and works full time to try to influence people that Christianity is not true. Uh, says that they're an atheist. But quite frankly, their issue, their, th- this man's issue that I'm referring to, his issue is not with God, his issue is with his father. I want you to note this guy, because he looked like a leader, but he wasn't. Okay? He looked like he was a man of influence, but he wasn't. Uh, years ago, years ago, seven up, their sales were dropping. This was a long time ago, even as I'm thinking about it. And they came up with a very innovative ad, ad campaign. And they said this, 7-Up, the un-cola. Not a cola, not a root beer. 7-Up, the un-cola. What what does the prefix un mean? I happened to look it up in the Greek text. Actually, I didn't. I'm just kidding you. But un, just from the context, how they use it, it's not a cola. It's different from a cola. It's the opposite of a cola. It's not a root beer. It's different from a root beer. It's opposite of a root. See, un means different and opposite. When I look at Diotrephes, he was a, a Bible-believing, uh, evangelical guy who believed the right things, who went to the right conferences, who never deviated doctrinally, but he was the unleader because he's different than a leader should be and he's the opposite of what a leader should be. I'm going to show you this in four or five ways. Number one, as seven up was the uncola, so this guy was the unleader. Number one, you see, he was the unleader because he was an unservant. Note, if you would, the phrase in verse nine he loves to be first among the brethren. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you must become the, anybody know? The servant. The slave of all. Uh, as men, and it's just because it's, it's who we are. We all love to be served. But here's the deal about being a Christian man. A Christian man. The job of a Christian man and you say, well, I know I'm going to be a spiritual leader and all that. Okay, well, how is it that you be a spiritual leader? Yes, we are to be spiritual leaders. But one of the ways we demonstrate our spiritual leadership is by looking at how Jesus exercised his spiritual leadership, who, although he existed as God, did not regard, Philippians 2 says, equality with God, a thing to be held on to. So he laid aside his privileges. Jesus was God. Jesus was the creator. But he laid aside his privileges and came to earth and was born of a virgin and became the God-man. Uh, th- this is astounding. Jesus, and why did he do that? Did he do that because it was best for him? He did it because it was best for me. Because you see, I was in such a jam and you were in such a jam 
We, we, were, we were lost and dead in our trespasses and sin, and we could not write the check to redeem ourselves. So what did he do? He laid aside his privileges, and he did not what was best for him. Was it best for him, as we saw in Mel Gibson's movie, to be obliterated and beat to a pulp before he ever got to the cross? And then to die that horrible death? Was that best for him? No, it was best for me and best for you. So what did Jesus do? He became a servant. I find it interesting in Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So when I meet a guy, he's always saying, you know, see, the Bible says my wife's supposed to submit to me. Yeah, and it also says you're supposed to get the crud kicked out of you for her. And maybe if you were willing to take some hits and some shots for her, you wouldn't need to bring up this other stuff. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You ever worked for somebody who was really a leader? Man, there. You ever played for somebody? You ever played ball for a guy, for a coach who was really a leader? Man, I'll tell you, you'd run through a concrete wall for that guy. And he'd work you hard, but I mean, you'd do anything for the guy. You ever work for someone who's just really a man of character, someone you really respect? Gosh, you'd do anything for the guy. But you ever work for somebody that expects a lot out of people and is a total idiot? It's really hard to take them seriously, isn't it? You see? I think, guys, it starts with us at home. See, this guy, big-time leader, Diotrephes, who loved, he, he didn't like to be first. It says he, he, he loved to be first. So what's our job? Our job is to serve. We're leaders, but we serve. that's just our job. So you know what that means? That means there are going to be times when it's not going to go our way. There are going to be times when we're misunderstood. There are times we're not going to be appreciated. There are times where we're not going to get the respect that we feel that we deserve. You know, that happens. Did Jesus know anything about that? Sure he did. All right, well, we're to love our wives just as Christ loved the church. That's our job. So you you don't take your toys and go home. And you know, say, well, well I'm, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm just going to leave. I'm, I'm going to go get a, I'm going to go divorce. Why would you do that? Well, you don't know how bad it is. Ah, it's worse, right? Are you telling me it's worse? Yeah. Well, you said for better or worse. It just happens to be worse. And see, what happens is we want out because it's, 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 it's so terrible. Hey, you know what? Paul's back there, and Paul's got Lou Gehrig's disease. Don't you think Paul would like to get out of that chair? I'll guarantee you'd like to get out of that chair. You know when I pray for Paul? I pray for Paul when I'm out doing my four-mile walk slash jog. Or walk jug, I guess you'd call it, because it's, <laughs> it's not much of a jog. But, but sometimes, and I got a couple of hills I go up, and I, I, then I really try to... I, anyway, I'm, I'm doing what I can do. And you know what? I think of Paul quite a bit. And that's when I pray for Paul. Because I'll say, Lord, I know, because Paul was a great weightlifter before he had this disease hit his life. And he, and he loves to work out and all that. Wouldn't he be loving to, wouldn't Paul like to be out running, lifting weights? See, he can't. He can't do that now. See, that's where God has him right now. And some of you guys, you feel just as trapped as Paul does in a sense. Because you say, well, I'm just here, I can't get, okay? Then that's where you are. That's where you need to be a man. 
and you submit yourself to Christ. As hard as it is. You see? And I'll tell you something, your kids will love you for it. And maybe they don't have it all figured out now, but one day they're going to figure out what you did. And they're going to rise up and call you blessed. There's a second reason this guy was the unleader. He was the unleader. You see, he refused to be a servant. He loved to be first. He had to be first. Um, I'll, I'll wait on that. I have something I want to say, but I'll, let's, let me get through these. Second reason this guy was an unleader is that he was unteachable. We talked about teachability last week. Do you see in verse 9 there? It says, he does not accept what we say. Well, who, well, can I ask you something? Who was John? He was an apostle. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. See, John had authority. But this guy was not teachable, and he would not listen to authority. Uh, is that not the spirit of our age? Our age does not listen to authority. So in the 60s, when the moral earthquake hit our nation, and some of you guys, I was in college then. Some of you guys remember the 60s? Um, it was, I mean, it was an absolute revolution that took place in this country. It was almost like in a summer, everything snapped and everything changed. And there was this anti-authority spirit everywhere, everywhere. You know what I find interesting? When the Antichrist comes, he's going to be called the man of lawlessness. And we're already seeing that, aren't we? There's a lawlessness, there's a spirit of lawlessness in our culture. And, and laws are ignored. Laws are set aside. Um, he does not accept what we say. So this is why we, last night, or last night, this is why last week we talked about the importance of the Word of God. And you know what, guys? We're under this book. We're under this book. We're not over it. We're under it. Um, that's how it works. Uh, you, you don't edit it. You don't change it. You don't twist it to make it fit what would make you feel more comfortable. That is if you're teachable. Um, once again, this guy, this guy there's, there's no, there is no hint in this guy's life of wrong doctrine. But he had a wrong attitude. He would not listen to the authority of the apostles. Number three, he was the unleader. He was the unleader because he was unjust. You see verse 10? It says, John says, he is unjustly accusing us with wicked words. Uh, th this is really significant. A lot of times, as fathers and as um, men in our homes and husbands, we can do unbelievable damage with our words. We can unjustly accuse with the wicked words. The man who I referred to earlier, his tongue is an absolute weapon. And he has shredded the hearts of his children, who are now all adults. A, a, a son who doesn't even believe in God. You, 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 he has been shredded by his father, by his father's words. 
one of the daughters, absolutely shredded in her heart by her father's unjust and wicked words pointed to her. See, every father sets the atmosphere in his home. When you were a kid, there was an atmosphere in your house. It was either an atmosphere of construction or destruction. In other words, the words of your father either built you up or they tore you down. Right? Some of you guys had a father with a constructive word, and man, that's great. What a blessing. Some of you had destruction. I've known guys in their 50s and 60s that are still trying to win the approval of their father, and their fathers have been dead for 15 years because they were unjustly accused with wicked words. Now, there's nothing you can do about your father, but now we're the husbands and fathers. So what kind of guy are you at home? I'm just asking. And I'm asking me. You see? What number am I on? Number three? That was three? I've got four in here somewhere. Fourth problem. This is big time. He was the unleader because he was unkind. You see in verse 10, neither, neither does he himself receive the brethren. What's that all about? Well, they would send out, they were sending out missionaries. And what was, they didn't have holiday inns, so when you'd send the guys out, they had to stay with believers. Well, what Diotrephes was doing, if John sent some people out, you see, he does not receive the brethren we send, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and he puts them out of the church. So you see, this guy was unkind. Uh, there's, there's a proverb that says, wrap truth and kindness around your neck. I've never had a problem speaking the truth. But I've had the, a problem developing kindness. See, every guy in this room, we're oriented one of two directions. Some of you guys are very truth-oriented. You, you don't have trouble telling the truth. Okay? But guys who are truth-oriented, sometimes we have trouble being kind. Don't we? No. Some of you guys, though, you're kind, and you're very gracious, and you're a real gentleman. Man, that's wonderful. But see, sometimes guys that are real kind, they have trouble telling the truth. And so we need that balance from the Holy Spirit. Wrap truth and kindness around your neck, because we need both. Now, what does this have to do? What in the world does this have to do with kindergartners not knowing what gender they are. Well, can I tell you something? I think there's a direct correlation. Because when you've got kindergartners that don't know what gender they are, I'm going to tell you something. That is a fathering issue. That is a home where the principles of the Word of God have been thrown out the window. There might be a physical father, but he is either a dominating, harsh, difficult, critical. It's interesting in studies of homosexuality, a lot of times when there's homosexuality, there's a father, Elton John's father was this way, stiff upper lip, British military guy, uncaring, distant, harsh, authoritarian, can never talk, he'll never listen. And so what happens, a young boy is driven away. You see? Scripture says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. You see? There's a time to discipline them. There's a time to have fun and a time to love them and just wrestle with them and have fun and just, you know what I'm talking about? Right? 
You know, even when you wrestle with your little kids, you know what you're teaching them? You're teaching them masculinity because they know you have the power to crush them and hurt them and you don't. They know that intuitively. But then when you have a man who becomes very weak and because he wants peace and he has a very strong wife, and in order to keep the peace, what does he do? He lets her have her way. Some of you guys are married to gals like that. Can I tell you something? You can't let her do that. You can't do it. Because that's a perversion of God's plan for your home. You are to be the tribal chief. And you don't go home and start making orders and all that. You just start leading and loving. And I'm not saying you're in an easy situation. You're in a very hard situation. But you can't punt. You have to be God's man in that situation. Will it ever be the way you'd like? Probably not. But that's where you are. And you need to stand firm on the scriptures and follow Christ with your whole heart and be as kind and be as loving as you can. But when push comes to shove, and if you're being pushed and you're being shoved, you're the leader and you better take a stand and your kids better know that you're the final decision maker. And most evangelicals would run me out of the room. And I don't give a rip. I really don't. Because you know what? The little kids are at stake. And little kids need to see daddies that love Jesus and love their mommies. That's what they need to see. And they need to see daddies will say, I'm sorry when they're wrong. This rings the truth, doesn't it? And I'm going to tell you with all my heart, when you've got a loving home and Jesus is at the center and you're attempting to follow what he says in the Word of God, you're not going to have a five-year-old wondering if he's transgendered. I just want you to know that. And guys, that's coming, and it's going to be all around us, and we don't need to fear. We just follow Christ with our whole heart. The whole world's falling apart, and it's insane. But he's rescued us from that, hasn't he? Do you ever pray for your kids, and do you ever pray for your kids' kids and your kids' kids? Do you? Keep doing that. They're going to need it. And God will write, he'll raise up a godly line for you. I'm out of time. Let's pray. This is serious stuff, Lord. It just, it, 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 it staggers us what's going on. We, we, would, we would laugh if it wasn't so tragically sad. It, 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 it is grievous to our spirits and to our souls. We're not talking about being tough guys, hard guys, macho guys at home. We're not talking about being a jerk. That's what Diotrephes, if Diotrephes was that way at church, he had to be that way at home. I wonder what his kids thought about him. I wonder what his wife, I wonder, I wonder how often she was embarrassed by how he handled people. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't listen to her. God, would you deliver us from being like that? I pray for the guys that are in here that may be like that. I pray that you'd be so gracious that you'd bring somebody along to hit them in the chops with a two-by-four so you might save their lives. Because guys that are like that, we tend not to see it. And Lord, I have to say what scares me is that I see a lot of this guy in me. I see those tendencies. So I would ask that you would protect me from me and bring about a change in my life and in my attitude and help me to grow in areas where I'm very weak. I think that's the prayer we would all make tonight, and we would pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.